0: Next Friday, I'm gonna be in Tallahassee for my oral canonical exams. If you don't know what that means, it's the final stage in the process of ordination in the Anglican Church. I appreciate your prayers for me on that day. I'll be spending the day before a panel of people from the diocese who will be discerning my preparedness for ordained ministry. And after this, if everything goes right, I could be officially a deacon before the end of the year. This is something that, if you don't know, my family and I have been working towards for years. Behind the scenes, I've been taking some classes. Uh, This summer, I've been working in hospice care to kind of round out my training. But what most people don't know is that I started seminary 12 years ago. And I finished most of it a decade ago. That means that this summer marks the end of a long series of detours in my life. So today, I want to tell you about just one of those detours. Kathleen and I didn't always go to Redeemer. And before we came here, we weren't Anglican. We were Baptist, Southern Baptist. And the church where we met was a special type of Southern Baptist church. They called it a Nine Marks church. And a Nine Marks Church is a church that believes that there are nine marks of a healthy church. And one of the biggest goals of a Nine Marks Church is a concept that they call meaningful membership. Meaningful membership is the principle that if you're on the roll of a church, then that means something. It means you're all in. If you're on the roll of the church, it means you're here every Sunday, that you're contributing to the burdens of the ministry. You're signed up for things like bringing food, or teaching Sunday school, or attending Bible studies, or something. You can't do nothing. You can't just show up and go home. To be a member of that church was an active commitment. And if you were no longer willing to commit to the life of that church, if you were to just become a passive attender, then you were no longer considered a member. Membership means something. And if you can't meaningfully be a member there, then you'd be encouraged to become a meaningful member somewhere else. <laughs> One of the ways that they expressed the meaningfulness was through the sacraments, though they call them ordinances, but they're sacraments. And they made the sacraments meaningful in two ways. First, you couldn't be a member without being baptized. And second... You only took communion, or the Lord's Supper, they preferred to call it, if you were a meaningful member of that specific church. Now that first principle, that baptism is required to be a member of the church, is that it's not actually very unique. It's the broad practice of most Christian churches. It's what we expect here. It's somewhat explicit in the Bible. Baptism gives birth to the church because baptism unites us with Christ. And the church is Christ's body. So to be baptized is to be united to the body of Christ, that is, to the church. So if you aren't baptized, then you aren't united to Christ, so you aren't a member of his body, the church. The second criteria is where things start to get messy. They restricted communion only to meaningful members. This meant visiting family and friends, people from other Christian churches, And even people who were regular attenders, but weren't actual members on the roll, would not be encouraged to participate in communion. Much more, when you visit other churches, since you weren't meaningful members of those churches, you would be encouraged to not commune at those churches. I have very strong feelings about this, and probably about five different sermons But right now, I just want to paint a picture for you of what it means, this idea of meaningful membership. And I'm telling you this because I want you to understand the situation from their perspective. It's a somewhat unique approach, and there's not a lot of people that have encountered a church like this. And so here's where Kathleen and I's detour to Redeemer began. Another way that this church exercised meaningful membership was that all the members of the church were required to affirm in its fullness the church's statement of faith. Now this is to make sure that all of the people who are members of the church actually believe all of the teachings of that specific church. Their statement of faith is over 1,700 words of doctrine. Compare that to the Nicene Creed, which is just over 200 the Nicene Creed is our expanded, detailed version of the Apostles' Creed, which is just over 100 words. The Apostles' Creed is what we require you to affirm before the congregation when you're going to be baptized here. So you might say that the Apostles' Creed is what we require for meaningful membership. But the statement of faith at this church is almost 20 times the length of the Apostles' Creed. So if you commit to affirm it with full subscription with no exceptions, no footnotes, no qualifications, that implies either that you're a somewhat theologically intelligent person or that you're willing to sign off on anything just to make people happy. (laughs) Again, though, this is part of the meaningful membership program. And part of the meaning of being a member in this program at that church is that you have to be a somewhat theologically minded person. Unfortunately for me, I was such a theologically minded person, but as it turned out, I had the wrong theology. (laughs) I don't want to bog you down with the details, but the end result of the program was that within our first year of marriage, I received formal notice that I was out of step with the church's statement of faith. I endured a couple private meetings before the elders of the church. If you don't know, elders are something between a vestry member and a deacon. And um, at the end of those meetings, I was asked to no longer take communion in that church until I repented from my error. I was formally excommunicated. My membership had ceased to be meaningful. Now this happened during the first year of Kathleen and I's marriage. Understand that... My family was one of the three founding families of that church. Understand that I proposed to Kathleen in the midst of a Bible study at that church, in the midst of friends who I considered family. And understand that half the people at our wedding were these people at this church. Understand that Kathleen had joined the church at great personal cost to herself. And that's another story that's worth telling another time. And understand that the pastor of that church was my spiritual mentor for years after I was converted. And he's the one that drove me to seminary, and he encouraged me to attend there. Understand that the group of elders in that meeting were men who poured their lives into me, as long as I' had known them, and that one of them was my father. I want you to understand that so that you can understand that when our first year of marriage I was forced to make a serious, grave, important, and costly choice. A choice that, frankly, most people in America have never had to make. If you've ever learned one thing about me, I hope you learn that I believe that theology and Christian doctrine are serious business. I'm speaking to you as someone whose convictions have cost me something. And that's why I happily put in hours and hours into these sermons, because I really believe this job's important, that it's crucial in the deepest sense of the word. At the end of the day, I'm not some guy that just likes big words. I actually believe all this stuff, and I want you to know about this stuff, because I believe you need to know it, believe it, and live it with me. So right now, you probably have two questions for me. Not because I'm interesting, but let's be honest. It's not every day you meet someone who's been excommunicated. Two questions are probably, what was the scandalous doctrine that I believed that got me excommunicated? And the second question is usually, why did I believe it was so important to take a stand on this issue? Well, to answer that, I want you to take a look at our scriptural text for today. I'm going to bounce all over the place because it's kind of a biblical theme, but I just want you to look at the Gospel, Mark chapter 6, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. The passage begins with the apostles coming to Jesus after being sent out to do his work. And he has them go out to a desolate place to rest. Now the apostles here represent the meaningful members of the church. These are the people that get it, that do things, that show up, that run the ministries, the volunteers that every pastor wants to see in his church, the true disciples. And the apostles needed to go to that desolate place because they lacked the leisure even to eat. In the Bible, desolate places are places that God's people need to go in order to rest and eat. Their places of worship. In the Exodus, the people of God needed freedom from their labor so they could go out of the city, out of Egypt, into a desolate place to worship. And when they finally did, it was only through passing through the waters of the Red Sea, which is a picture of baptism, and feasting on the Passover lamb, which is a picture of the Eucharist. The apostles going away to a desolate place to rest and to eat is a picture of meaningful members going to church. And if you don't get symbolism in the Bible, then you're totally going to miss the fact that verse 32 says that they went to the desolate place in a boat, which symbolizes baptism. If you don't believe me, ask Peter. He says it in his letter that Noah's ark is a picture of baptism. Going on, Mark writes that many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran their own foot from all the towns. And got there ahead of them. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd. None of these people in the crowd could be described as meaningful members. Mark says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were just normal people. Excited about what they saw going on in the midst of Jesus and his apostles. And they were hoping to get in on it even if they couldn't understand it completely. None of them could have signed off on a 2,000-word document outlining everything that Jesus and the apostles were teaching. Most of them were illiterate. But compare the two responses of Jesus on the one hand and the disciples on the other. The disciples tell Jesus that the crowd should go home and get their own food. They don't have what it takes to survive in the desolate place. But verse 34 says that Jesus had compassion on the people. Jesus had compassion on them and commanded them all to sit down in the green grass. The word green is in there. It's not random. Many parts of this passage are written to make you think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down. In green pastures, he leadeth me beside the still waters. The psalmist goes on. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Jesus sees these people, and he identifies himself as their shepherd. And what does he do for his sheep? He prepares a table before them. He feeds them. What was the meaningful mark of these people? What was the mark that got these people fed? They followed after Jesus, and he taught them. And when he told them to sit, which is a symbol of making Jesus your rabbi, they did. They listened to him. That's the mark of a healthy church. And in their midst, he performed a Eucharistic miracle. He prepared the table before them and took five loaves of bread, which symbolizes the five books of the law, which represents the people of Israel, and two fish. And the fish keep showing up in this passage over and over like it's important, because it is. Fish are an Old Testament symbol for Gentiles, for people outside of Israel. People who are often considered unclean, common, profane, unworthy in the presence of the God of Israel. And Jesus perfectly combined all seven elements, blessed, Broken and distributed. Verse 43 says that they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces and of the fish. 12, of course, is the number of tribes of Israel. And by turning the mixture of bread and fish into 12 baskets, Jesus was proclaiming that he was making a new Israel, but not one of pure, separated from impure, or clean, exempt from the unclean, or holy separate from the profane, or circumcised at one table and uncircumcised at another table, but instead, one people. The disciples did not understand this. Not at first, at least. But it was always alluded to in the Old Testament to give just one example in our Psalm 22 today. Verse 27 begins, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations, the goyim, the Gentiles, Shall worship before you, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. When God is king over the world, all the families of the nations will come together and worship Him. You see it's spelled out pretty explicitly in our Ephesians passage for today. Chapter two, 11 follows. and we're not going to have time to look at it, but you should reread it sometime. You have to remember the Gentiles are all the people originally outside of the covenant of God. These are the people who weren't allowed to eat the sacrifices of the temple. These people were not meaningful members of Israel. They weren't allowed to eat the Passover lamb. They were cut off from the promises of God. Until now. Paul's vision of the cross cuts vertically and horizontally. It's cross-shaped. He tells us how the cross reconciles God and man. And in our passage today, he continues to explain how this also creates reconciliation between all men, drawing us together into one single household. And failing to live this out is a rejection of the gospel. In the Galatian churches, Paul fought hard against a group of individuals who were dividing the church up into Jewish groups and Gentile groups. These Judaizers, is what they were called, They wanted Gentiles to get circumcised if they were going to eat next to the Jews. Faith wasn't enough. More was necessary. This is an explicit denial of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith. He says, if the circumcision party is right, then the offense of the cross has been removed. So let me tell you what happened to me. In the section... In the Statement of Faith on Sacraments, I want you to listen, see if you can find the controversial part. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer into the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit to show forth in a solemn and beautiful emblem our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to a new life. That it is prerequisite to the privileges of a church relation and to the Lord's Supper, in which the members of the church, by sacred use of bread and fruit of the vine, are to commemorate together the dying love of Christ, preceded always by solemn self examination. If you didn't hear it, it's in the first line. We believe that Christian baptism is the immersion in water of a believer. Now the truth is, I have no objection whatsoever to the statement. As a theologian, I always want to tweak the way people say things, and there's always better ways to say something, but my actual objection was what was left out. I wanted to add the phrase, and their children. The conflict at my church was that I believed that it was appropriate to do like we do here. We baptize believers and their children. This, of course, is what you read throughout the book of Acts. Someone repents and believes, the apostles baptize them and their family. Someone repents and believes, the whole family gets baptized. It happens multiple times. But the church I was at was a Baptist church. And one of the distinctives of being Baptist is that when you repent and believe, only you get baptized, not your children. Now, I want to be very clear. This is not an argument for infant baptism. Um, I'm not going to talk about why you need to believe it or not. Uh, This is about why I thought this doctrine was important. And I want you to understand just two things about it. I want you to understand why my church did not like infant baptism. And then I want you to understand why I feel the doctrine itself is so central to being faithful to the gospel of Jesus. The church I was at was all about making it meaningful to be a member. And part of that is the requirement that any person considered a member should be able to agree to the statement of faith. But a baby can't affirm a statement of faith. A child can't volunteer to serve Christ by bringing muffins on Sunday. An infant is absolutely dependent on others. And offers nothing. It has no way to demonstrate its own independent faith. Children are silly, immature, and fickle. Any faith that we speak of in them must be a very weak and fragile faith. True faith isn't like that. Or so the argument goes. But when the elite inner circle of disciples tried to protect Jesus from the bother of children, Jesus said, Let the little children come to me. Let me say this. Inner circles do exist, and they aren't inherently bad. They're actually somewhat normal. Jesus had inner circles. His closest circle was him and the Father. Outside of that was Peter, James, and John. And outside of that was a larger circle, the 12 disciples. It wasn't wrong for the church I was at to expect members of the church to believe the things that the church taught. It isn't wrong for the church to expect people to see their membership in the church as a real, meaningful part of their life. It isn't wrong to expect people on the roll to take their faith seriously and let it govern their actions. This is what every leader in every church wants from its people. The problem was that they confused their identity as strong members of the church with the identity of the church itself. But the church is made up of all sorts of people. Jew, Greek, men and women, rich and poor, college professors, burger flippers, pastors, parishioners, book people and sports people, married people and single people, mature adults and immature children, those strong in the faith and those weak in the faith. And Jesus says that any one of those who will sit in the green grass and make him their rabbi are meaningful members of his kingdom. A church that raises the bar beyond that is failing to keep in step with the Spirit of God. But Jesus gets to decide that, not us. And so I leave you with two parting thoughts. Notice in our Gospel passage what Jesus has his elite inner circle, his meaningful members, do. Jesus performs the Eucharistic miracle to feed the 5,000, but who actually feeds the people? Look at verse 41. It's the disciples. The purpose of having a living, vibrant, deep faith isn't so that you can rest assured that you have that faith. The whole purpose of being strong is to serve. And who do the strong serve? Not God. The strong exist to serve the weak. The second thought is, sometimes the people who think they're strong aren't quite as strong as they think they are. In Matthew 18, Jesus' disciples came to him and asked him, who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus turned the question on its head. He called a child over to him, and the text says, and he put him, the child, in the midst of them, the disciples. And then he said to them, unless you repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles yourself like this child will become greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. I believe that, and I want you to believe that too. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Now please stand as we proclaim the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. For the peace of the whole world and for the well-being and unity of the people of God, let us pray to the Lord.